Hey, welcome to Forest Hill Church. My name is Jason and I'm one of the pastors here and I'm so glad that you've joined us today for this message, however you got here. You know, Forest Hill Church is a place where we have this mission of building bridges that connect everyone to dynamic life in Christ. That's what we're all about. And that's what we've been trying to do through our messages the last 16 weeks. We've been in this series called Trade Up. The idea behind it is that you and I have a life and we have this opportunity. Jesus invites us to trade the life that we have and that we can build for the one that he offers. And so for 15 weeks now, can you believe it's gone that quickly? We've been looking at an eyewitness account of Jesus' life to get some clues as to what that life might look like and, and how we might find it. Next week, we're going to be wrapping up the whole thing, and then we're going to be pivoting to a new series where we're going to be talking about joy. I can't wait for that. We're going to look at how do you experience and discover joy in the middle of wherever you find yourself. And I know for lots of us, that's going to be a real important topic. But as we close up next week, I also want to highlight one thing for you. Follow us on social media, because this week, all week long, we are going to be taking you on a virtual tour as we get ready to see Jesus' final words, where he compels us to go to all the world with this message of the life that he offers. We want to take you on a virtual trip to a part of the world that maybe you've never been to before and help you see it through his eyes. So join us this coming week on social media. As we wrap up today, though, and get ready to uh, experience how we make this trade, we're going to be looking at the last few hours of Jesus' life. And as we do that, we're thinking about this idea, what kind of life that he might have us to, to choose to take on. And it, we've looked at all kinds of aspects of it. We found that it's a, it's a countercultural kind of life. We found that the life of Jesus, the way of following him, it can easily be misinterpreted or, or misunderstood. We've also, also found, though, that it's, it's powerful, but it's a life that's marked with suffering that we fully believe one day will be redeemed. It's a life uh, that easily can be taken in and, and seen as, as something beyond this world with meaning and purpose and vibrant with adventure that sometimes the lives that we decide to allow ourselves to lead just don't show up with. And the way that you get it is by exchanging, trading your life for his how that happens is what we're going to look at in Mark 15 today. But before I read the passage, I just wanted to kind of set your mind at what this exchange of identity might look like. You know, uh, my name is Jason Smith, an unbelievably common name. And because of that, I end up often getting confused with other people. In fact, last night, just to check this out, I did a Google search of my name, and you'll find in Charlotte, North Carolina, 149 records of Jason Smith's. A anytime I travel outside the country, when I'm coming back in, I almost always get pulled to the side by the Customs and Border Patrol people because somebody somewhere did something who was named Jason Smith and they're trying to make sure it's not me. In fact, if you've ever wondered what that little room is like that they take some people off to the side, I can tell you, I've been there a bunch. And it's nerve-wracking because sometimes you're, under, you're not sure what the consequences of someone else's actions that are being attributed to you might lead to. What are the results of someone confusing me for someone else. I've often hoped that one day I'll go up to a counter and somebody will confuse me for another Jason Smith and they'll say, congratulations, we see that you paid off your home loan and your seminary loans and, and you won Chipotle burritos for a year, but that hasn't happened yet. Right now, I still have to live under the expectation that usually when somebody exchanges their record for mine, I end up on the wrong side of the deal. That exchange of record is exactly what we're gonna be looking at today 
in this passage. So if you're able, as we read from Mark 15, verses 33 to 39, I'd love to ask you to stand. We do this out of authority, recognizing the authority of God's word, and also as a a way of being solidified together, wherever you might find yourself today. Here's what we're going to find as we look at this passage, that Jesus invites us to trade a life for his that is a kingly life. He's, He's a king. That's what makes this such an incredible bargain. It's When I say king, I'm not sure what it comes to your mind, whether it's King Arthur or King T'Challa from Black Panther. It might be a, a brutal king. It might be one of those big dudes in like faux fur and gold who just sits there quietly. But this kind of king, the one that Jesus is, is totally different. This king was a suffering king, a serving king, and a saving king. Let me show you how Mark spells that out. Mark chapter 15, starting with verse 33. He says, when it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, They said, see, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, offered him a drink and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. And Jesus let out a loud cry and he breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the son of God. This is God's word. You can be seated. The first thing we find in Mark's description of this last day of Jesus' life is that he's a suffering king. The most vile, gruesome, painful, humiliating kind of execution that any person in that time could experience was crucifixion. We catch this story right after Jesus has been tried, after he's been arrested, after he's been betrayed, and now here he finds himself having to go through the the most extreme form of capital punishment, the most vile and evil thing that one human at that point had invented to do to another human. Jesus suffered from incredible pain in this moment. And the Roman Empire did lots of crucifixions. They were really good at this. They had done it all over the world, both to uh, humiliate the people who might stand up against them uh, and also to leave it as a symbol that no one would ever want to go through what, what Jesus we find going through in this moment. It was a terrible thing to witness. The pain was without mercy, except a few moments Often they would offer uh, the one about to be executed a drink, some wine mixed with myrrh that was used like a painkiller. Jesus was offered this, we're told. And in a a moment, he looks at the one who's offering and and says no. He refuses, he rejects the painkiller. Jesus is not allowing anything to numb the punishment that he is feeling. He suffers incredible pain, but he also is a suffering king in that he suffers incredible isolation. Do you notice this in the passage that talked about at right at that time at noon that the whole land went dark? Well, 
in the scripture, darkness happening during the daytime is often associated with God's judgment. It's a, a symbol or a picture of God doing something that's unnatural to invade at that moment earthly time and human history and to execute judgment. And it's the same thing that's happening here. In fact, um, Amos 8 and 9, a prophet hundreds of years before Jesus, had written, we believe, about this very moment. Uh, looking into the future, he said this in Amos 8 and 9, in that day, this is the declaration of the Lord God. I will make the sun go down at noon and I will darken the land in the daytime. All throughout Mark, all throughout this last few moments of Jesus' life, we find him in darkness. Every event around his death is covered in darkness from his betrayal in the garden to his trial in the early morning to now at his point of death. It's a sign that God was judging the whole world. And I want you to think about what that might have been like. Do any of you remember the eclipse that happened, the full and total eclipse that happened a couple of years ago? I remember being with my family. We gathered together and put on the glasses. And, and when the time came, if you remember, there was this expectation. And as, as the sun was covered up, as, as everything seemed to change in our vision, and as it got crazily dark in the middle of the day, did you remember how it felt almost electric? There was just something really different about that moment. So imagine standing there, looking up at the cross, after all the chaos that had taken place, after all the, the, the loud, the screaming, the cursing, the writhing in pain, after people who were yelling and, and the sound of pounded nails, after all of that, darkness begins to creep over. Can you imagine what you'd be feeling if you're standing there? I think everyone got quiet. I think there was this sense that you don't know what's gonna happen next, but you know that something is wrong. Surely, the people's voices who did speak were amplified. People's senses were kind of on edge. And imagine in the middle of that loud silence, the voice of a suffering king screaming out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? So often in the scriptures, we see God show up right at the last minute, you know? If you think about really the whole story of the people of Israel, whether it was when they first get released in the Exodus from their bondage in Egypt, and they're trying to get away, and suddenly we find that they're being chased by the Egyptians, they come right up to the edge of the Red Sea and they're trapped, and at the last moment, God shows up and parts the sea and frees the people. Or think about Abraham. Abraham, who was doing his best to obey God, even when it didn't make any sense. And he's standing there with a knife about to sacrifice his only son. And at the very last moment, God steps in and he provides a sacrifice, a substitute, a ram. We find all over the place in the story of God relating to humanity that he shows up right at the last moment. Maybe it's a fish to rescue Jonah who's just been thrown over right at the point of drowning or shipwrecks that were stalled. It's like God is the master of the last second rescue. But in this moment, there was no rescue. At this moment, our king suffers alone. And when he screams those words, why have you abandoned me? Folks, it was for you. And it was for me. The reason that God chose to not show up and rescue was so that he would never leave us alone again. God left Jesus Christ isolated 
and absolutely alone so that we would never be alone from this point on. This suffering that Jesus experienced through darkness, through pain, through isolation, all of it allows him to understand what you and I go through. This is one of the beauties of trading your life for his. It's that he understands what you're dealing with, what you're experiencing. He gets the fact that, that, that even though most people in power, most kings wouldn't understand what happens with just common everyday people, this one does. He's lived it. He's tasted it. He's had that experience. You ever had one of those moments where you're talking to somebody about something deeply emotional? And as you try to relay it, you can tell that they just don't get it. You can see in their eyes they don't understand. They can't empathize. And, and have you ever had that moment where you just say, uh, you, you just can't understand it. You don't get me. And, and it's a frustrating thing. You don't feel peace. You don't feel like they've been able to kind of bring healing to your moment. This king, this Jesus, he completely gets where you've been or where you are at this very moment because he was a suffering king. Secondly, he was a serving king. You know, uh, the pilot right before the crucifixion had interviewed him in the trial. He had, he had asked him if he was a king and Jesus in fact said yes, but Pilate couldn't understand what kind of king he was. Really the disciples didn't understand it either. The religious leaders with their PhD in religion, they didn't understand it. No one could grasp the kind of king that would serve the way Jesus did. Think about everything that we've read in the last few weeks in Mark. He's always going to, the, to whatever extreme is necessary, taking whatever steps are necessary to serve those in need around them. Whether it was raising a dead girl or a best friend, even though it would cause authorities to want to kill him. Whether it was showing up to heal someone even though it violated the, the principles and the man-made rules of the day, whether it was uh, sending around with the most hated person in the city, whether it was befriending and standing up for the other, Jesus always saw a need and served it. In fact, he said in Mark that we looked at that he came specifically to serve people. This is not normal behavior for a king. And people couldn't understand it. And yet on the cross... The cross outside the walls of Jerusalem. The cross elevated. He could look out from that city. And at that moment, I believe that he could see far into the distance, far through the land. He could see need. And he knew as he was being punished, as he was being made the sacrifice for everyone, as he was opening the way for us to experience the life that he offers, he looked at you and at me. I think he looked not just far in distance, but far through time. And he saw what we needed right now. And he said, I will stay here until it is finished, until they've been served. Kings with power, they don't, they don't do that. Before he even got put on the cross. There's this really interesting moment. It's, it's actually kind of funny. It's like a paradoxical. Where, where Pilate and, and those who were crucifying him, they were intending to put above his head the charges that he was dying for. At that time, uh, maybe for everyone, but certainly for him, they wanted to place, here's why you were being crucified. So anybody who walked past would know, hey, don't do that. And so it might read treason or it might read sedition or insurrection. For Jesus, do you know what they put on there? Mark tells us that they had inscribed a, a placard and on it it said, King of the Jews. It was meant to be mockery. 
because they couldn't understand a king that would serve that way. What they didn't realize is that it actually should have read king of all. (laughs) Jesus in that moment was serving the entire world by allowing himself to be punished. So he was a suffering king. He's a serving king. And then at the end here we find he's also a saving king. Through his death, he brought victory. Uh, Let me show you this. It says in verse uh, 31 and 32, it says, in the same way the chief priests with the scribes, they were mocking him among themselves. And they were saying, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Yet, that was exactly what he did by staying on the cross. His choice to not come down, even though he could have, Even though when they say, come on down so we can see and believe that you're this king, he chose to stay. In fact, now as we look back at this moment, the fact that he didn't get off the cross, the fact that he chose the nails, the fact that he allowed the life and the blood to literally drain out of him on the ground was so that he could save us. (laughs) Come down, save yourself? Nah, Jesus He wouldn't do that because it was clear that what was needed was his death. In his final words, it becomes real clear what he had accomplished. That, he had accomplished everything that he set out to do. In verse 37, it says that he let out a loud cry. This is the second time Mark has used those words, a loud cry. And and here's what's interesting about that. You would not get a loud cry from a person undergoing crucifixion at this point. Three hours after the beating, after the flogging, after being placed on that tree and raised up, three hours later, there's not enough strength or enough breath for anyone to be able to do more than maybe a whimper. And here Jesus, in this moment, just reminding us of the authority and of the power that he has, even in his death, he yells with a loud cry, Mark says, John, one of the other writers who was there and saw this, he tells us what those last words were. Jesus' final words were, it is accomplished. He uses a a phrase that says, not like, uh, it's over, I'm done. Like we might say after running a long, you know, a a long workout or going through something that's really difficult and we're like, it's finally I survived, I'm done. No, this is more purposeful. With these words, Jesus screams out over the universe. It's accomplished. That that I came to do has been done. It is finished. This is the the kind of language that you would use when you've paid your last payment on a car, when you have finished that marathon that you set out to run. It's after you've turned in your dissertation. This is after you've climbed Mount Everest. I did what I set out to do. It's the cry of victory as life flowed out of him. What kind of king is this that finds success in dying? Three events take place at the very moment that he dies. Three things happen and and they're so like packed in here that I just want to show you real fast and, and what they mean. At the moment that Jesus dies, light begins to overtake the darkness. Do you remember it said that it had become dark from noon until three o'clock. At three o'clock, Jesus screams, 
and he dies. And at that point, the light begins to come back. It's like the, the darkness that had been covering the earth in that moment physically, but also for all of human history. The darkness that we even still see vestiges of now that break our hearts and that cause us to be angry and cause us to weep and that, that cause us to cry out, this is injustice of all kinds. That evil began to be pushed back by the light the moment that Jesus died. This is, this is good news. The second thing that happens is it says the curtain is torn. Now, this is not the kind of curtain like the one that separates you know, economy class from first class on an airplane. Uh, we're talking about a thick curtain that was hanging inside the temple. In the place where the Jews would go to worship, there was uh, a very thick, very heavy woven curtain that kept them for their own good out of the holy of holies where the presence of God was fully manifest. And in that moment, that curtain, which was so thick that human hands could not rip it, it says it tore from the top to the bottom. At that moment, God ripped open. He destroyed the barrier between us and between him. Before then, you couldn't come in with your darkness. You couldn't come in with sin. Only the holiest person with a blood sacrifice could walk through that curtain. And at this moment when Jesus dies, God says, I took care of it. It's over. It's finished. Anyone can come in and be in my presence now. No more separation. Finally, the third thing that happens at Jesus' death is the centurion. The Roman soldier charged with killing him and overseeing his death. It says, he looks and saw the way that Jesus breathed his last and he said, truly, this man was the son of God. It's interesting. When we started out this series 15 weeks ago, the first thing that Mark says in Mark 1.1, he says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Mark tells us at the very beginning what his aim for his letter, for his book is. It's to help everyone who reads it to see that Jesus is actually the son of God, that he's actually the king. And, and he says, I want you to see this good news. Well, for 15 weeks, we've read the scriptures and guess what? This is the first time that a human has ever said those words, son of God. Mark wants us to see that in his death, he validated he proved who he was. And it's so interesting that the first person to notice it was not a Jew who had been looking for it, was not one of the religious people. It was one of the most unsuspecting, unlikely others, a Roman guard who was able to make this statement. By the way he died, and this man had seen a lot of people die, by the way he died, I can tell that's the son of God. Here's What's good news for us about this death? You know, the crucifixion, it's, it's so difficult to read. And if you've seen a movie like Passion of the Christ or something where it's depicted, it's difficult to watch. But, but here's why it's such good news. Um, the death and punishment of Jesus is so intense. It's so all-consuming. It's so dark. It's so lonely that it should bring us peace. Here's why. If you think your guilt. The, the gospel, the good news of the cross is this. If you believe that you're so guilty you can't be forgiven, that, that you can't make up for 
what you've done? If where you are right now at home, maybe it's, it's something you've carried for a long time, or maybe it's things that have happened since you've been stuck at home in quarantine the last 15 weeks. If you feel so much guilt and you can't imagine being forgiven for that, the cross, it shows that, that what was needed was done. There's, there's no more intense repayment that could happen. This was so bad. It was so terrible. And Jesus so willingly took it that you don't have to wonder if you could be forgiven. Price has been paid and it was steep. On the other side of that, if you're a person who wonders, like, how am I ever going to make God happy? If you're constantly striving to do more and more good, if when you read this, you see this example of Jesus as something that you got to try to imitate, it's killing you. It'll crush you. you. You recognize that when your record, when your identity gets exchanged, God sees you as having done everything perfectly, as having lived exactly the way he wanted. You don't have to strive you can rest. If you've had a friend or someone in your family betray you or hurt you, seeing this and the way that he forgave means that we have power to find forgiveness even for those who've hurt us the most. If you've lost someone, God knows what that's like. This king understands betrayal. He understands loss. It means that you can experience the grace of a God who's been there. If you wonder right now, does tomorrow have any hope in it? Is everything I see in the world or do I see in my life, all of it appears as if is only darkness. This story, this picture, this life he offers says that tomorrow is not hopeless because what we'll find out next week is the resurrection is just around the corner. This is not the end of the story. We look at this scene and what we need to do is not try to live up to it. What we do is we explore it, we experience it, and that's how we change. It's taking in the beauty of this king, this suffering, serving, saving king. It's trading up the kingdom of this world and its gods, and there's a lot of them, power and money and position and, and all of that autonomy, and it's trading it for this kingdom of God that's ruled by this kind of king. Suffering so that he understands you and me. Serving so that we get to experience his grace. And saving so that this is not the end of the story. Here's the thing. This king also makes it possible that on this side of life, we get to make a choice. Kill him or crown him. <laughs> Silence him or submit to him. That choice is for you and me today too. For some of you, I wanna ask you to consider after seeing this and hearing this, I wanna ask you to consider, would you crown him king? Would you trade your life for his? All it takes is simply saying by faith, I trust that what you went through and what you did actually was enough to tear down the separation between me and God, to bring forgiveness and to allow the light to push back the darkness. If you say yes to that, you can have this kind of life. But it does require a choice. Which will it be? I'd like to pray right now that each of us would choose to crown him. So would you join me in this prayer? Father, as we sit with the, um, 
the words, so economized, so few that were kept for thousands of years so that we could relive this day and this moment and see you as the king that you really are. God, would you move our hearts to trust in nothing else but that? Would you move our hearts to trust not in ourselves or our effort or our record, but simply to believe not only in your record and what you've done, but that you say you will willingly exchange with us if we will allow it. God, I pray that for many today, some for the first time ever, they would choose to make you king. They would choose to say yes. And Father, if there is any here that, that is feeling that place, like I've just forgotten that I'm not the one in charge, I've forgotten and crawled back up on the throne of my own life, God, would we also choose to get down to submit and to be citizens of your kingdom? Jesus, we ask, knowing that you've done everything that was needed, it is accomplished. We trust that now. In your name we pray. Amen. In just a few moments, you're going to have the opportunity after we uh, have a song, you're going to have the opportunity to engage. And, and maybe for you, today is a day that you want to ask for more prayer or further discussion. If you do, you can uh, drop in the chat and you can uh, say, hey, I'd like to talk more about this. For many of you, I pray that today will be a day you look back on and you say, that's the time, that's the moment. After hearing his story, that's the moment I chose to trade up for the life that Jesus is offering. God bless you.